Thessalonians chapter 3. We're going to read chapter 3 and cover all of it today. Some of the joys and pains of ministry are how to break up a passage and preach on it. Um, And some of your Bibles may actually have this section starting in 217 and running through, but um, we know from uh, the end of chapter 2 to the end of 3 is a very personal uh, revealing of, of Paul's heart for the Thessalonians. And so we're picking up um, where we left off a couple weeks ago. Paul longs to see them. And in verse 1, chapter 3, he says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported you always remember us kindly, and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we, re- can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Gracious Father, we ask you to unfold your word and that your spirit would accompany your word with great power and with full conviction, with the divine fullness of your perfect omniscience to do in our heart what you know you want to do in us. Help speaker and listener alike heed these words as if you were speaking them audibly to us this morning. Bend our ear to you. Give us ears to hear. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, this next section of First Thessalonians, Paul is pouring out his heart to them, and he's really showing his emotional roller coaster as he desired to know how they were faring. He says he could no longer bear remaining in ignorance of whatever came to the Thessalonians. Did you catch that in verse 1? He could no longer bear it. He says it again later in the chapter as well. So, Since he could no longer bear being in ignorance of what actually happened to them after their visit, he sent Timothy to go back and check on them, knowing that this apostolic team of Silas and Timothy and Paul were 
torn away from the Thessalonians amidst affliction. Paul was considerably anxious as to what Timothy would come back to report. He saw in his rearview mirror as he was leaving town, Paul did, a riot in Thessalonica, and he didn't know how these new Thessalonian believers would fare. And he even wondered if all of his labors there would be in vain. So he sends Timothy. Timothy comes back with a report, and Paul is overjoyed at this report that the Thessalonians were faring quite well. And this news really only caused Paul to pray that they continue on this track of love, of faith, of hope, until, until Jesus comes back. So while this passage gives us a glimpse into Paul's heart, it also gives us a glimpse into how the Lord would want our heart to respond to each other. We have previously seen using Paul and the Thessalonians how a minister relates to the congregation and the congregation relates to the minister. And that is true here, but I want to just bring it down to a more horizontal level more obvious level of how Christians relate to one another. That the Lord has designed his church to work in concert with one another for each other's joy and endurance to the end. The Lord Christ has woven together his church so that you and I and other Christians help each other Christians make it to the end. That's what Paul is all about here. The Christian labors for others so that they would appear before Christ. That is Paul's MO. I want to do ministry for each other, for others, so that they make it to the end. He's not content with just a formulaic gospel presentation and then being hands off. No, he sees himself and he sees Christians helping other Christians make it to the end. So the Christian labors for others that they would make it to the end to appear before Christ. And the Christian is also the recipient of others' labors with whom Christ's appearance looms large. So the Christian is a worker and a recipient of of the work of others. There are benefits and there are obligations in Christian fellowship. And for one simple purpose, to endure to the end to be saved. Now, I said there are obligations and benefits in Christian friendship. I I am purposefully using the word Christian friendship instead of Christian fellowship. Not because I'm against fellowship, but if fellowship is just two Christianese and vanilla, Christian friendship, I think, in my heart at least, strikes a chord of warmth and affection and commitment to one another that maybe fellowship might not. But this is what Paul says Christians do. Christians help Christians get to the end. Friends help friends see Christ and get to Christ. So as I go through this text, I want you, I have a couple points, but I want you to think about these points in in two overarching questions. One, 
do you know how much you matter to your fellow Christians? Do you know your worth and value to other Christians? Your counsel, your presence, your words. Do you know how much you matter to other Christians? And secondly, do you know how much you are needed for other Christians? You are both needed to minister to and to be a recipient of ministry. That is the mutual goal that communally, in community, we would all reach the end. Firstly, I want to show you this in, chapter, in um, verses 1 to 5, that the threat of affliction should drive our ministry to, to each other. The idea that we face affliction in varying degrees should drive our ministry to each other. He says he could bear it no longer, Paul does, about be, remaining ignorant, in, in ignorance as to what the Thessalonians are like. He says even that they were destined for affliction, just like Paul was destined for affliction. And so he leaves, and naturally he feels like he left a guy behind in battle. Paul's wondering, what, what has come of them? I have no idea. So in, in this section of chapter 3, this is, he's writing this section of chapter 3 as if he hasn't written the letter yet. We already know he's given many statements about his confidence in the Thessalonians. But this is all based on Timothy's report. So in chapter 3, he's writing, oh, now I'm just doing like timeline writing. Now I'm actually writing as if I didn't even know, right? And so he thinks, who knows what happened? They're baby, brand new spiritual sheep. They could be gobbled up by wicked wolves. Maybe they're thriving. I don't know. But he was uncertain. He lacked confidence. And he was afraid. Paul, the apostle, afraid that his labors would be in vain with these Thessalonians. And by saying he viewed his labor in, he wondered if his labor was in vain, it wasn't simply because he thought we could labor to God's elect in a way in which is in vain, but simply he didn't know who was elect. <laughs> he didn't know if Thessalonica was going to turn out to be like Athens or Philippi or wherever. Just didn't know. He poured his heart out for weeks there, and he's wondering, has all that been in vain? He didn't know if they were going to be the first soil, you know, the, the soil, the path soil, the hard ground pack soil. You know, the tempter comes away and steals away the seed. He doesn't, doesn't know if they're going to be the second soil or the third soil, praying that they be the fourth faithful fruit-producing soil. But one thing was in his mind as to their spiritual well-being, and that is, how would they fare under affliction? That was, that was the driving force for Paul. How are these young Christians faring under this heavy, destined affliction? And the New Testament shows, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, 
the chief reason why we wouldn't endure to the end is because of suffering. That is the chief reason, humanly speaking, obviously we're upheld by the hand of God, but humanly speaking, why someone would not make it to the end, to that glorious day of Christ coming back. So what is affliction? What is suffering? It comes in all shapes and sizes. And some of us might have a lot or an assignment of affliction that others will never experience. I'm even thinking of some of you in the room who have a physical or emotional thing you're going through that, frankly, many others won't have to wrestle with. But that's your lot by God. So what is affliction? All shapes and sizes, but we can say confidently, affliction is that pain which comes from living in a fallen world for Christ. It's that specific pain, physical, emotional, mental, relational, for living for Christ in a fallen world. It's not just pain for living in a fallen world because everybody experiences that. But the Christian affliction is living for Christ in a fallen world and experiencing the pain of the fall. Rejection, betrayal, persecution, physical violence, embarrassment, belittlement, whatever it may be. Accidental, intentional, spiritual forces coming from friends, And we have to ask ourselves, if I want to endure to the end, how good am I at dealing with pain? How good am I at dealing with pain? I think an analogy of working out is a fair analogy. Pain causes us to quit whatever it is that's inducing pain. (laughs) Running, cycling, swimming, rowing, whatever it is, rock climbing, mountaineering, when we are exerting ourselves and we have pain that comes to us, we naturally want to say, that's not, I'm not going to do that anymore. (laughs) I'm not going to reach out to that friend anymore if they just stab me in the back. I don't want that pain again. Pain is instantly, oh, I'm gone. See ya. (laughs) But suffering is pain. And how are we doing with handling pain? Loss, unmet expectations, betrayal, harsh words. To make a habit of unbiblically handling suffering, to make a habit of unbiblically handling pain, is to veer from the narrow path and onto what Solomon would say is the path of folly. There is either the path of wisdom or the path of folly. And as you know, those paths in the book of Proverbs or in other wisdom literature in the, book, in, the, in the Bible, it's not just physical. And it's not just physical rewards of wisdom or physical rewards of folly or punishments, consequences of folly. But the wages of sin is death and there is eternal consequences. And how we deal with suffering matters. In light of all of that, though, the Christian can be buoyed up by 
the value of knowing Christ way more enjoyable than the pain of suffering. If you put two things in a scale, the, the goodness, the pleasure, the delight, the satisfaction of knowing Christ, and on the, hand, on the other hand, the, the pain of being a sinner, living in a fallen world, so forth and so on, which will go where? And Paul says, that's not even an issue <laughs> for the believer. Maybe he's speaking a little ideally. But in Romans 8, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's almost as if it's an insult to the glory of Christ that we would be so put off by our present sufferings. And Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians that we, we do uh, labor and we don't lose heart even though we're these cracked and earthenware vessels, you know, with the gospel shining out. No, no, no. Like, the sufferings are real. But even the reality of these painful sufferings, however bad they are, can't compare to the goodness of the glory of God. So we all have an obstacle as we are going to glory. And we need to be mindful that everybody has obstacles of suffering, affliction, before the end goal. The end goal, the Christ coming back, as I said in Sunday school, it's the whole enchilada. It's everything. And there are hindrances in the way. And... 1 Thessalonians 3 says, are we mindful not only of what hindrances I experience, but what my brother or sister experiences that could prevent them from getting there? That, that, that's Paul's MO. He is so concerned about the Thessalonians. He's like, I don't even know if I labored in vain or for profit. That's a logical portion in... Paul's philosophical equation. And he thinks, oh, uh, that person's suffering. I need to go to that person. Because that suffering might mean that person doesn't make it to the end. Now, I know I'm sounding like God doesn't exist and he's not sovereign or providential. I wholeheartedly believe that. But on a, in a human level, where we live and where we don't know the future, we should respond to each other's suffering with sympathy and care and attention. If someone comes to you because they know you're under a test, you should receive that as they're concerned of your soul. Not because they, after all, didn't think you were strong enough to deal with it. Or if you know someone overwhelmed with suffering, you should go to them because you're concerned about the effect it has on their soul. Be a good enough friend to go to a fellow sufferer and say, hey, I, I know you're going through it. How you holding up? How you holding up? Be a good enough friend to go to a fellow sufferer and say, you know what? I'm going to talk to you about Christ. Because it's likely in your suffering, he's been eclipsed. 
And if you can't see him, I'm bringing him to you. That's every day. Every day, suffering's like, my world has just gotten smaller and I'm at the center of it and it's me, myself, and I and I define everything and I forgot that God is providentially in control of all things and he's good and he's wise and he's loving. And that huge good news needs to be dumped on the person who's suffering to say, get your head up. Your salvation is at hand in Christ. We lose sight of Christ in suffering. And we need, so we need to bring Christ to, to each other. A, a Puritan, Samuel Rutherford, great, great writer, says there is no sweeter fellowship with Christ than to bring our wounds and sores to him. And if you know somebody who's unable to bring his or her wounds or sores to Christ, bring Christ to, their, to them. So we want to be aware that affliction might prevent us from reaching the end day. Second, we need to understand that Christian friendship or Christian fellowship shares joys and pains. In verses 6 to 10, Paul is, is Paul's response to Timothy. This is such a sweet letter. He says, now that Timothy's come to us from you, it's, it's heaven. It's great. We were distressed and afflicted, uncertain, wondering if the tempter had stolen away the seeds on the soil. We didn't know what was going on. Timothy comes back and we find out, actually, they're progressing quite well. We've heard about your love and your faith and that you even desire to see us, which is something. Hey, do you mind coming back? I know it was a little rough last time you were here, but like, do you mind coming back and building us up in the faith? And th- this, is Paul's, this is Paul's reaction to finding out another Christian dealt with suffering well. The, the apostle who's strong on God's sovereignty, who loves providence, who, who writes Romans 8, 31 to 39, who writes nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, is also one who is intimately interested and sees the reality of a possibility of falling away. And when the falling away doesn't happen, it says, this is awesome. God is good. Look, look how he responds. He says, for this reason, brothers, in verse 7, in all, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So Paul has moved on to Berea. He's moved on to Athens. He's moved on to other cities. He's facing affliction still and distresses because it doesn't just happen at Thessalonica. He says, but in all of that stuff, all of that affliction, we've been comforted about you. He also says, we're thankful. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you and for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? So he's comforted, he's thankful, he's joyful. He says, this news actually, actually makes me want to go back to you in verse 10 so I can see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith, which is not a dig at their faith. It's just simply saying everybody needs to be built up in the faith no matter how, how old, how young. But he summarizes and emphasizes his reaction 
to the Thessalonians' faith in verse 8. Because he says, in the most outrageous way, now we live. After hearing about your faith, we are now alive. We were in dread. We were uncertain. We were dead. But your faith and the spiritual quality of your life, spiritual life, cause us to live. That's the relationship, the friendship Paul has with the Thessalonians. That their spiritual well-being was so important, he would say, we are living off of you. So important is their spiritual well-being that he says, now I'm alive. Now I'm alive. This is truly what it means to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I know it's an often quoted verse. It's a fabulous verse. But it is a shared heart that Paul would actually be that affected, emotionally affected, at the prosperity of another person. That, that is a bond of Christian friendship that is only given by God alone. That can't be mimicked or imitated by Twitter, Facebook, or whatever, or just because you went to the same high school or whatever. This is a spirit-wrought friendship, fellowship in the spirit, where Paul says, I'm living on behalf of your well-being. That's how much I care about you. We just have to ask the question, is that true of us? Do I care so much about you that I actually am staying awake at night? Or I'm just like, eh, whatever, I'm going to sleep. Or that you would have for each other. How real is the pain of your fellow brother or sister affecting you? Christian friendship is such that a Christian's joy, gratitude, and life hinges upon the spiritual well-being of somebody else. It doesn't mean that you make that person an idol. It doesn't mean that person is Jesus to you. It just means, I love that person so much, I want them to do well. Paul has already said, hey, I became like a nursing mother to you. I gave you all this stuff with nothing in return. I became like a father to you. He is pouring himself out to these people and his reward is finding out that they are doing well in the Lord. Uh, not too long ago, uh, Sarah and I had the pleasure of seeing off some friends um, and uh, some of us, some of our closest friends were in this group and the U-Haul truck was there and we're getting ready to see them off. And um, it, was a, it was a tender moment. One of the men in that group started singing the hymn Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. I don't know if you know that. I didn't until that moment. 
but it's a really sweet hymn. A couple of the stanzas say, Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims are one, our comforts and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. When we are called apart, it gives us inward pain, but we shall still be joined in heart and hope to meet again. Or as the British may say, again. You see in that hymnal, that hymn, one. Hopes, fears, aims are one. We share mutual woes, mutual burdens. We have a sympathizing tear or an empathizing tear. We're joined in heart. It's a wonderful hymn portraying exactly what happens here and what should happen here. That the awareness of affliction would drive you to serve one another. And the sweetness of your communion with one another, your friendship with one another, doesn't mean, here's the obligatory phone call, but is genuine, heartfelt interest in one another. This is what I believe Jonathan meant when he said to David, actually David to Jonathan, Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. The fact that there's even any hint of homosexuality in there just shows the complete ignorance and sad place people come from when they don't know Christ. Get friends who you can be like this with, be a friend who you should be like this too. Be the kind of friend, especially young men, women, kids. Friends are going to come and go. Friends will stick around if they know you love them. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and it is Christ himself. Some of the most miserable moments of your life will be completely beyond your ability to handle if you didn't have at least a single friend. One loyal, loving friend can make all the difference in the world. And of course, we have our Lord. No, 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 no. No slight against his presence, his knowledge, the fact that he calls us friends. No slight against that, but humanly speaking, it is the sweetest thing in life to have a friend who loves. Um, Augustine said, there is no greater consolation than unfeigned loyalty and mutual affection of true and good friends. The classics, Augustine, Plato, Cicero, they actually wrote very highly about friendship. Um, It mattered. 
And unfortunately, in our world, friendship is just not valued. Maybe because none of us are good friends. Maybe because we don't have any good friends. But however you are a friend to others, or others are a friend to you, know this, that this stays the same. Christ calls you friends. And one of, the, one of the sweetest ways of knowing Christ is to know, oh, how he's loving me now is similar to, but way, way better than how I loved this person or how this person loved me. And we know the cliche thing of, oh, that was, I saw Christ in you in that. Even though cliche, very, very profound that Christ would be so moving among his people. So, so Christian friendship involves sharing joys and, and pains. And lastly, Christ's appearance, his second coming, is our ministry goal. In verses 11 to 13, Paul prays to the, Thess- to the Thessalonians. Oh, that's blasphemy. He prays to God about the Thessalonians that the Father and the Lord Jesus would direct Paul's way to them, that the Lord would make them increase and abound in love for one another, so that, here's the ultimate aim, this is the whole, the big kahuna, the whole enchilada, everything, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's Paul's prayer. And you can see, you can see his aim is, is ultimate. He's, he cares about what's going on here and now, but he cares much more about the ultimate, which is Christ coming back. That's what's driving his ministry. So real, so palpable is Paul's expectation of Christ coming back that he says, oh, that person's suffering. I want, to make them to the, I want them to make it to the end. I better go serve them. Or I want them to make it to the end. I want to go serve them. Christ is truly coming back. I need to go to that person and pray for them, help them, minister to them. The second coming, this eschatological moment eschatology is way 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 more than the length of the millennium or some guess at a secret rapture or how Jews and Gentiles live in a millennium on earth with Christ reigning and all these silly things silly eschatology is God's plan culminating in one glorious end. Eschatology drives our ministry. Eschatology is to say, Christ is coming back. I need to serve. It's real. He's real. It's that tangible. It's so felt. It would drive us to serve one another. Now, I want to make a couple comments about verses 12 and 13. Love for others is essential to holiness. Love for others is essential for holiness. He says in 3.12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. 
the, re- the redundancy is not accidental. Increase and abound, it, it, it's a little, it's redundant. But the redundancy has a purpose to underscore the primacy of love. To increase and abound in love, love. You got to get love. You got to get love right. Biblical, true, Christ-centered, dying, selfless, love. But in in 3.13, he doesn't say, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in love. He says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Love is absolutely vital to be holy. We cannot say, I have some measure of godliness or personal holiness and not be loving. They are practically synonymous. That's one. Number two, Christ is about holiness. He desires his people to be holy when he comes back, and he comes back with holy people. In the words of John Piper, the only people coming and going from heaven are holy people. In verse 13, he says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Going on, he says, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, or literally, holy ones. Christ loves holiness. He is holy. He rolls with holy people. And the only people who have his company, his appearance, his companionship are holy people. Now, you don't feel holy, and neither do I. But it doesn't matter how I feel. Because when God says, I am declaring you holy, you're holy. And the, the realization of that holiness will come to fruition. It will. It is as inevitable as God himself. We love soteriology. We love salvation theology. We, we must also love eschatology. Eschatology, the glorious day of Christ coming back in glory with his holy people, with the audience of the Father, is the culmination from God's plan of eternity. Salvation don't get me wrong, is wonderful, but is a means to an end. Usually we think means to an end justifies the means, whatever crazy that may be, and they're not that important. No, salvation is a means to an end, but it's a glorious means to an end. The goal isn't to be saved. The goal is to dwell with God eternally in the presence of his Son in perfect, radiant holiness. That's, I'm not saying the Lord... Lord's logic works like ours. But what do we do? Where do I want to go? Here. What steps do I need to do to get there? (laughs) What does God want? Holy people. He wants to share his joy and enfold his people who are sinners, enemies, rotten sinners into himself so that they experience his eternal joy and make them holy. And that, and that design by God 
is what should drive us to say, I want to serve. I want Craig to be holy. No, no offense, I know you're already holy. <laughs> I want this person to be holy. I want them to be more holy, godly. I want them to make it to the end. Again, Paul's expectation was felt and tangible and palpable. That's what truly drove his ministry, not to get by on a suffering earth. The hope is all future. If we move the hope here and make ministry all about living comfortably here or dealing with things well here, Hope's going to be really unsettling and quite a downer. Hope needs to stay out there because hope is Christ and Christ is our hope. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John doesn't end there. He's all about the second coming too. And he longs for, yearns for, I want to be like Christ. That's the sweetest thing I could have. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. To put it in common parlance, it is unheard of to desire the second coming and to not care about holiness. If I care about Christ, appearing before him, I care about holiness, my own and yours. That's what Paul is getting at here. And so thus we can see why it lends itself to bearing each other's burdens. I want to bear this person's burdens not to get anything out of it, but just to help them get to the end. I want to be aware of my friend's suffering because it helps them get to the end. The end is everything. There's nothing else other than the end. Christ's glorious day, the sky peeled back like a scroll, mountains melting like wax, that's everything. That's everything. And all our pain, even our joys now, will be pitily nothing compared to that glorious day. So, Christians help Christians get to Christ. I need your help to get there, and you need my help. And all, however 50 or however many of us here need each other's help. Call it ministry cross-pollination <laughs> to get to the end. It's God's way of enduring to the end and seeing Christ in perfect blamelessness and holiness. Let's pray. Gracious Father, nail these words into our hearts.
Purify our motives to serve one another. Purify my motives to preach you for the saints' sake. Purify the saints' motives to serve other saints for selfless reasons. All that we would get to your son's day. Grant Grant those who might be afraid if they'll make it the confidence that they are held up by your hand ultimately, not the goodness of their friends, but also empower them to be friends as a means to getting people to the end. Amen. You can stand for our song.